Good morning, or if you're tuning in from the US, good evening, uh, and welcome to the United States Studies webinar on Evan Osnos's fascinating, sprawling, and timely new book, Wildland, uh, The Making of America's Fury. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respect to their elders past, present, and emerging. As 2021 draws to a close, it's well to remember just what a crazed start to the year that we had here in Washington, DC. After a year beset by pandemic, civil unrest, and political turmoil, the January 6th attack on the US Capitol beginning 2021 was the first major attack on American soil since the falling of the Twin Towers some 20 years before. It was also the first assault on the Capitol since the British stormed and burned it in 1814. But look, we're not gonna talk about 1814, though we might talk a little bit about 9-11 and its aftermath, because the sources of what happened on that day in January cannot really be found and cannot be explained only by looking just at the events preceding the run-up to January 6th. America has been undergoing a seismic shift in its politics and its culture, and those shifts date back decades. Understanding the sources of that discontent, how it led to that particular moment, and thinking about what comes next is of the utmost importance, not only for Americans, but for America's closest ally, Australia, as well. To discuss all this, to understand some of the profound changes taking place in America, and to understand that the shifts in Washington merely reflect some of those broader changes taking place in Connecticut, in West Virginia, in Chicago, I'm thrilled to welcome uh, my Lao Peng Yo, my old friend, Evan Osnos, uh, who is going to talk about, as I said, his sprawling, his ambitious, his depressing, and his utterly absorbing new book, Wildland, uh, The Making of America's Fury. Uh, for any of those of you who do not know, uh, Evan is a staff writer at The New Yorker. His latest book, Wildland, is a New York Times bestseller, and it's hailed by critics as one of the best books of the year. His first book, Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China, uh, was based on eight years living in Beijing and won the National Book Award. From 2008 to 2013, he was the New, York, New Yorker's China correspondent, and he now reports from Washington. Previously, he worked at the Chicago Trib, uh, I was going to say Trib, the Tribune, where he was part of a team that won the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting. Uh, it's not only those two books. Uh, Evan also popped out, literally, a book on Joe Biden in super speed that came out just before the election. So whether it's on China, whether it's on Joe Biden, uh, whether it's on America's Today, he is one of the most important voices uh, covering America, explaining to America. And really, for anyone who aspires to make sense of Washington's politics, really just understanding America, he is an indispensable source, and I commend not only his book, but his regular writings in The New Yorker. Uh, one other note that I wanted to point out, and this is more of a hopeful note. Uh, the last time Evan and I talked about a book, uh, I was teaching up at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, and Evan came up, and it was a pretty good talk. And I say it was a pretty good talk because he hadn't slept at all before he came up because he had literally come from the book awards where he had won the National Book Award. So uh, Evan, uh, for your sake, for the book's sakes, let's hope that this is a precedent that we have. <laughs> uh, thank you, Charlie, and thank you. That is, that is a, I have to tell you, 
I didn't sleep all that much last night, but that's because I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, as you know, uh, which is a significantly less glamorous reason to be up at night, but a reason you know well. And I have to tell you, it is a total treat to be here back in conversation with you. Our conversations have uh, quite literally spanned the globe, starting in Beijing, uh, con extending to uh, uh, to uh, the subject of China and the United States. And now here we are talking about a country we love and a country that we are therefore entitled to critique uh, and it is our own. So um, thanks for to you for the idea for this. Uh, and as I'll explain to people later, you are not an innocent bystander here. You actually helped me think through this book at a crucial moment. And we'll get into that, I'm sure. Well, thanks, Evan. And, uh, you know, uh, my wife, uh, always reminds me that all of us who are at home uh, in our basements, in our offices, uh, everyone's used to this. So uh, Evan is uh, solo parenting right now. Uh, <laughs> I am uh, not solo parenting, but I just heard the dog bark. So uh, all the uh, things that go with the Zoom calls, we're all going to roll with it no matter what happens. Uh, but for those of you who are watching, let me just say the game plan is uh, Evan and I are just going to talk about a lot of things, uh, about his career, about the book, about America today, but really what I want to do is, and Evan, I know I was mentioning this right before we started, uh, I'm not kidding when I say this is a talk that I'm almost nervous for because there's so much in this book, there's no way we're going to do justice to it all. Uh, all of those of you who are listening can only do justice by running out and buying a copy. Uh, but really, uh, I, I want to make sure that by the time we get uh, about a half an hour in, 40 minutes in or so, that if we're not covering things that people want to hear about, uh, if there are questions that people want to put to Evan, please uh, populate them in the uh, comments box, in the, in the questions. Uh, I promise I'll do my best to sort through as many as possible. Um, so with that, uh, let's, let's start, Evan. Uh, as you said, this ongoing conversation we've been having for a while. Uh, mm -hmm. But I don't want to start with the book. Uh, I actually want to start with you, uh, and I'm asking because uh, your life, your career, even your family's life and your family's history kind of weave throughout and set a lot of the structure uh, for this book. Uh, mm -hmm. And if we're talking about you're growing up in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, you're taking a job right out of college in Clarksville, West Virginia, then spending time in Chicago, uh, you know, with timeouts in Iraq, in Egypt and in China. I'm hoping you can just kind of give everyone who's listening an overview a little bit about uh, each of those places. Uh, what did you do there? What did you learn? How did they come together to inform this book? Because this is not a book that's three years in the making. Yeah. Uh, well, you're kind to, to be interested in essentially the substructure of this book and, and why it why it is something that is so specific to my life. I, I should tell you, I am kind of, you know, allergic to the idea of memoir. This is not a memoir simply because I don't think I've earned the right to have a memoir for, you know, God willing, another 40 years or so. Uh, there is a great New Yorker cartoon of one turtle asking another turtle, I don't know what you're doing in there, but as long as you're not writing a memoir, it's fine with me. It, you know, in this case, it was a different proposition, which was, and you and I faced a similar moment, which is we came back to the United States at various points over the last five or 10 years. And uh, I was looking upon it both sort of in, uh, with my hat as an analyst and a writer and then also as a citizen and saying, what has happened here? And I, you know, I, I come to this partly as somebody who is I am. Um, I am in some ways, I have as much of my social world as populated by folks who live outside the United States as it is by people in the United States, partly because of where I've lived. We'll talk about that in just a second. But um, 
I think for that reason, I kind of approached my own country with a bit of the perspective of a foreign correspondent uh, to say, how can I try to render a portrait? And I have friends who have done micro uh, micro analyses of parts of the country, who have done parts of you know, maybe one person, one figure in Washington in this period. And I felt like that wasn't really what I was trying to answer for myself. Um, a, a word on sort of how I come to this. I am a, an American full stop. I was born in England when my father was a reporter for the Washington Post based in Moscow. And they decided they didn't want to have a kid in Moscow in the mid 70s. So they went to London, had me and then went back to work. My mother and my father, um, I will just say a word on them because it's in its own way a kind of I suppose a sort of um, a very American combination. My father is a ref Polish Jewish refugee born in India when they fled the Nazis and was raised in the United States. My mother was the daughter of American diplomats from Chicago. She was born in Morocco because that's where they were posted. The two of them met in Vietnam during the American War. They married at a tiny town in Michigan. And when they presented their paperwork, actually, I didn't put this in the book, Charlie, but it feels appropriate. They presented their paperwork to the local clerk in this little town to say we're getting married. And they had all these places like Morocco and, and Mumbai and Saigon. And the clerk said, now, kids, you need to take this seriously. This is serious here. This is not a joke. And But in its own way, this is a very American story. I mean, I am a combination of all of these elements. And the reason I mention all this is I decided I couldn't write a book about one piece of these places I've lived, of these elements of my uh, family story, my own story. I had to try to put them into conversation with one another because it's in the, it's in that juxtaposition that you actually begin to get some of the energy, uh, the very volatile energy that you have in the United States today. It's the ways in which these different traditions, these different identities, these different claims on power and status uh, all of these are, as we see all the time, in this kind of volcanic combination. And I said, the only way I can write this book is by putting them under the, onto the page together and, and try to negotiate right there on the page. Um, so that was the, the connection between my own story and, uh, and, and the structure of the book. No, that's great. And I, I don't want to push you on the memoir. Uh, you're far too young looking to write a memoir. Uh, but, <laughs> Getting but, older by the day, thanks to those two little people I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the book, though, tracks with places that you were at. And what I found really interesting is there's a before and after snapshots of these different yeah. places. And again, for those of you who haven't yet read it, you know, the, the main stops are in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, yeah. in Clarksville, West Virginia, and right. in Chicago. And before we kind of zoom off to yeah. why you picked those places and what they chose, uh, tell us a little bit about each of those places in your life, yeah. what you were doing there in each of them. Yeah. And um, so I, uh, I, I grew up mostly in the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, which is many people may know, is a wealthy suburb of New York City and is interesting for two analytical reasons, really. One is that ever since the Industrial Revolution, it's been a place where economic decision makers live. There have been you know, CEOs and executives and what we used to call the captains of industry living in this little town. I mean, it's a town of 60,000 people on the outskirts of New York City, and it's been prosperous. But in the last 20 years, the prosperity has gone through the roof. I mean, it's now known in the newspapers as the hedge fund capital of the world. 
And the creation of that alternative investment industry has concentrated wealth in extraordinary ways in a small place. And the effects are being felt politically, economically, morally, culturally, and in all kinds of fascinating ways that I wanted to document through individual lives. The other reason why it's important is it's been the center of Republican leadership for a very long time. It's quite literally the birthplace of George H.W. Bush. And, you know, Prescott Bush, his father, uh, who was, after all, the sort of iconic moderate Republican of the 50s and 60s, he was Eisenhower's golf partner. He was the guy who ran the local town council. He ran all of the, he was the sort of biggest political figure in town. And when in Greenwich, when the local Republican committee, uh, the head of the local Republican committee came out very early in favor of Donald Trump, I realized, okay, something has happened. This, this person was choosing not to back Jeb Bush, but to back Donald Trump. And I said, I got to understand how that happened. How did we go from, from Prescott Bush to Donald Trump? The second place is Clarksburg, West Virginia. It's the first place I lived out of college. I went there as a baby journalist. Um, I was working at a newspaper called the Clarksburg Exponent Telegram. But what's fascinating about Clarksburg, West Virginia is it is a place, it's a small city in the northern part of the state, about 15,000, 16,000 people. But it was conceived with tremendous ambition. I mean, if you go back and you look at the 19th century, the way people talked about it and thought about it, they said, we want to be the Athens of the Allegheny Mountain. It was built, they had these sort of beautiful hotels and buildings and stuff downtown. And it really prospered for a long time. And eventually it kind of fell off that track of American prosperity in ways that we would now recognize. And importantly, politically speaking, when I was a young reporter there 20, now 23 years ago, it was all Democrats. Every member of the congressional delegation was a Democrat. Uh, people still had FDR's portrait hanging on their walls. And now today, West Virginia is one of the most reliable pieces of Republican territory in America. And I wanted to understand how that happened. And then the third place is Chicago, Illinois, where my family is originally from, particularly the south side of Chicago. And Chicago is and, and really has been for a century uh, kind of the American laboratory for understanding race in the city. It is particularly important as a place to understand racial segregation and the effects of compounded poverty over the generations. And there's been a great, you know, the school of Chicago sociology has really kind of helped us understand that. And I wanted to go into the lives of specific people in Chicago and figure out how did political power, economic power, and race kind of combine and, and, and create um, not only the politics of the place, but also some of the things we think about uh, questions like crime and punishment and rehabilitation and the possibility for, um, for really reconciliation. And so I decided to take these three places which have been a part of my life. And I said, if I can just take myself out of the foreground and just let other people's stories drive this thing forward, I suspect that I will find ways in which they connect with one another. And that, I mean, Charlie, that has ended up being really, that's what this, the book is this, is a, a project in which one thinks they're getting into a book about America's divisions. And what you discover is, I'm not saying that we're not divided. God knows we are. But in fact, there are these ways in which we are impacting each other every day. We're connecting in one another ways, economic or political, that are often negative, actually. They are having unintended consequences. But it's those connections, the decisions that are made in Greenwich and the implications in Chicago or in Clarksburg, that, that in many ways was the discovery that helped me understand how we got into this moment in America.
Thanks. That's, uh, I mean, a really good overview for where we're at. Uh, you know, you haven't yet mentioned, and we can talk about it or not. I mean, there are, when you're reading the book, there are these fascinating people you meet. Uh, I mean, look, as, as someone who is not a journalist, I find myself actually quite interested in the methods. I, I mean, how do you find all these people? How do they find you? Uh, mm. I mean, you have deep stories for each of these places of, as I said, these kind of wild, interesting, ambitious failures, successes of people. And uh, in, I don't know if it's of interest to people who are listening. I'm really interested. Can you tell us just a little yeah. bit about, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking when I was reading your book about, you know, Chip Scourin, uh yeah. in Greenwich, uh, about yeah. Preston Park, about Sidney Muller. Uh, right. Ha- Thank tell you. us a yeah. little bit about them, Evan. But, you know, for those of us who are not journalists, how the heck do you find these people? So I'll, it's a great question, actually. And this sort of methodological question is, uh, I, I am personally fascinated by, I mean, one of the books, and I will just as an aside, you know, one of the books that shaped my approach to this project uh, is Lawrence Wright's book on the origins of 9-11 called The Looming Tower. Many people on this call will have read it. And part of the reason why I, I, I came to that book with such intensity was it's the book, it's a prehistory of a, of a catastrophe is what it is. And it's told not through the sort of just the grand strokes of history, but really through the kind of intricate details of people's lives. And that's what I was seeking to do. And what you discover when you start doing that is that people's lives will actually end up leading you to the grand themes. You mentioned somebody, I'll give you an example. Chip Scourron is somebody who's a fascinating case. Uh, And uh, Chip was a doctor, very well educated. He was at Yale, got his medical degree. At the same time, he got his, his uh, PhD in public health, really a high flyer on his way, went to Harvard for his residency afterwards for a fellowship in surgery. And he, and he sort of realized as soon as he was doing it, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. I, in a way, it had kind of scratched the itch, the ambition itch. And um, he said, I want to do something else. And his brother-in-law, interestingly enough, said, you should go look at Wall Street because Wall Street is starting to hire doctors. This is right around the beginning of this century, uh, you know, 2001. And uh, they were starting to hire doctors, specifically hedge funds, because of course they were trading in healthcare stocks. He knew nothing about this business. He literally went to the bookstore, Charlie, and he bought a book called Getting Started in Hedge Funds. He didn't know how to read a balance sheet. He didn't know how to do anything. And he read this book called Getting Started in Hedge Funds and he applied for a job and he got one. And he succeeded very quickly in the business. And he made about $30 million over the course of the next couple of years. He started his own fund. And pretty soon, he kind of, I would say, almost ambled across the line between legal and illegal conduct. And he found himself handing a packet of cash to a doctor in a darkened bar in Barcelona in exchange for inside trading secrets about a drug trial. And he was arrested and he went to prison and he came out and I started a series of interviews with him because there were a lot of people in Greenwich, to be perfectly blunt about it, this place that I grew up, place I love, a lot of people in Greenwich were going to prison for financial crimes. There were so many, in fact, at one point who were getting wrapped up into various investigations for financial wrongdoing that the street we lived on called Round Hill Road uh, was nicknamed in town. It was nicknamed Rogues Hill Road, And I was desperate to understand how that had almost like a virus, this idea of this kind of ethical contagion that was kind of moving from one person to the next in some ways. How did it happen? I was, we talk a lot about norms in this country, and I wanted to understand how norms are created, how they're passed, how they're broken, 
how they're how they're changed. And Chip Scourron, I am pleased to say, I am very grateful for his willingness to talk to me about some of the most embarrassing and painful and difficult things in his life. And he did it. And I think to your question, I sort of left this to the end. How did I come to him? How did I, how did I get to him? Uh, I was talking to my brother-in-law and I said, I'm writing about the, this kind of strange wave of white collar crime in my hometown. And I said, and he said, you know, I knew a guy I went to medical school with who went to prison, I think, from, from your town. And he just gave me the name and I started looking into the case and I thought the case then was fascinating. And I called Chip Scourron up out of the blue. That is the difference between being a journalist and being a historian is, you know, we can't, uh, we, we, we're not able to research our way out of a paper bag, but we do somehow have to get over the idea of calling somebody out of a blue and out of the blue. And to his credit, he said, yeah, I will talk to you not just once, but, you know, more times than I can count over the course of the next few years and kind of walked me through that process of norm formation. That's the thing that was, that was, um, that was fascinating. Thanks. Uh, I mean, that is interesting. And you've got these stories, not only about Chip, but in, in each of the main locales, we don't have to go through each of them, but they, mm -hmm. as you said, and I really liked how you teed this up, Evan, that what you're really, what interested in you, which drove the narrative, which drove the research is these kind of vast changes in mm. economic, uh, uh, distribution uh, across the United States in the political changes in our system, in changes in both the social and the racial dynamics, and how do we get there? And of course, you you do this by choosing individuals, where you then begin to branch off in about fifteen different directions at once. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, when you were just starting to answer that, you said that you were looking. You were talking about Lawrence Wright's book, which is a fascinating book. Um, yeah. I don't know, by the way, if you're going to follow suit uh, like him and turn this into a one-man play. Uh, he did a one-man play. <laughs> I wouldn't count um, it. I can't sing. He can, actually, but uh, he, he didn't he sing did it. I saw it when it came out. <laughs> he didn't. It was actually yeah. pretty fascinating, too. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, you said that you were looking to write a prehistory of the yeah. catastrophe. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the book, and I think for people haven't read it, uh, you know, the title titles are good places to start. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. you think a long time about them, what will kind of grab people, make them want to do this, what you might pitch to a publisher, what might show up uh, in bookstores. And this one, Wildland, you know, if you're walking by, you might say, ah, right, a book about the United States. Look, it's got the colors of the United States. Got it. Uh, but mm -hmm. look, at, when you open the book, uh, you'll find that the title is not a reference to America as a wildland, as a crazy place, mm -hmm. but it's actually a metaphor for a condition. Um, yeah. And, you know, not giving anything away for uh, readers, uh, we're talking on like page two. You say <laughs> that uh, wildland is uh, a firefighter's term uh, yeah. uh, that is a term of art used to describe a realm of perfect tinder. Uh, it's a condition. Uh, it's not a place. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, describe the opening scene of this book, why you gravitated towards that, uh, why this is the metaphor that you started this book with. Yeah, I, I um, you know, this in some ways, this is a book that uh, requires this conversation between sort of abstraction and specificity. It has to be you have to have the you have to be able to give people um, a framework for understanding what we're talking about 
what happened to this country. And at the same time, it, it simply must be rooted in concrete experience. I, I was not interested in writing an essay. Um, I was writing essentially a documentary. And um, I start the book with the story of a man, uh, a rancher at a small ranch out in California who uh, was walking through his yard. This is a true story. He was walking through his yard a few years ago. And uh, he noticed a little wasp's nest in the ground at his feet. And he decided to seal up the nest. He picked up a, an iron stake, a rusty stake that was lying around. And he started hammering it into the hole just to, just to block it up. And it spit out a little spark. And the spark hit the grass near him and started to burn. And it began to burn faster than he thought it would. And he tried to snuff it out. He tried to sort of, you know, put water on it and nothing worked. And pretty quickly, this thing was racing across his yard and up into the hills. And it eventually became what became known as the Mendocino Complex Fire. And it was the biggest, uh, most destructive fire in California history at the time. It then went on, of course, to be surpassed by bigger and bigger fires over the course of the year or two afterwards. And what was fascinating was they went back and did this investigation of the origins of the fire. And they said, you know, this guy was responsible for the spark, but he wasn't responsible for the fire. He said, because the fuel that was building that fire, the combination of climate change and deferred maintenance and all these other things, those were accumulating in plain sight. That's what the fire investigators said. This is essentially, they said, this has been here on all of us. We've been watching this develop. And when I read that story, I realized that this term that they use in firefighting, which is a wildland, is this terrain of kindling, essentially a, a land that is ready to burn. And it reminded me of this line that you'll remember, Charlie, from China, which is a Chairman Mao's observation about politics, where he said, all it takes is a single spark to start a prairie fire. And living here in Washington, where I'm talking to you from today, over the years, over the last eight years, I've watched as the sort of physical terrain of America has burned at the same time that our political culture has gone up in flames. And it felt as if there was like a kind of dialogue between these two, they're mirroring one another. And it was more than metaphor, it was something else. And I realized that was the book I was trying to write, which was how did we become this wildland, sort of primed to burn? Because we often talk about Donald Trump as the point of ignition, but I think we're all coming to terms with the fact that the point of ignition continues. And we don't know if we're at the beginning, the middle or the end of the story. Um, I, I, I actually worry, I think that we're at the, we're in the early stages of a story that I think is going to carry us for years of political turmoil. And, you know, we can talk in a moment if we want about hopeful indicators. There are some, but we have to be candid, I think, bracingly candid about how serious the situation really is. Um, look, if we can just kind of stay for a second on metaphors and analogies, and it's not the only one in this book. Uh, I, I stopped counting because there are a lot. Uh, you have wildfire, you talk about a river and tracing back its sources. Uh, but look, you know this, I'm a historian. Uh, and so I, I love historical analogies uh, just because they're fun to play with, but also the limits of what they can actually do. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, around about two thirds of the way through the book, right, we encounter the analogy of don't think about America today, think about the 1850s. Mm -hmm. uh, but then that seems to kind of go by the wayside and you keep coming back to, I kind of see throughout the book, not the 1850s, I mean, that's a very disturbing analogy, but the 1890s, mm -hmm. uh, when you begin talk, uh, talking about um, the Gilded Age, uh, 
why, and by the way, for those of you who haven't read it, this is also a metaphor uh, that runs throughout your last book, Age of Ambition, uh, right. about Gilded Age in China. Uh, these are yeah. two wildly different systems. Where did you kind of see and pull from the same historical bank? Yeah, and I should say, you know, this is this is the point when my colleague at the New Yorker, Jill Lepore, whenever um, a kind of you know no good journalist begins kind of promiscuously suggesting historical analogs, she's the one who's always pulling back on the reins and saying only up to a point, up to a point. And there is something to that, you know. I'm always mindful of saying we're not trying to describe these things as perfect parallels, but there are lessons there, and there are. Um, patterns of action that I think are, are helpful. Um, and in the case of the 1850s, I won't belabor the point other than to say that Joanne Freeman, uh, the Yale historian's book on the subject of violence in Congress, specifically violence among members of Congress in the years leading up to the Civil War. If you haven't read it, read it. It is It reads like a kind of haunting prophecy and I think something that is really relevant today. Um, the 1890s really captured my attention, partly when I was living in China, because it was, you know, as Mark Twain described it when he gave us the Gilded Age as a concept, it was a period in which you was a kind of society bursting out all over the place. You had a tremendous growth in wealth, in, in, in kind of status markers and conspicuous consumption. And also you had abject poverty, you had exploitation, you had a system almost kind of running in overdrive. And that always helped me understand China that we see today. Um, it became one of the do dominant metaphors. And when I moved back, and so I've been doing a lot of reading over the years about the Gilded Age. And when I came back to this country, it was very present in my mind because just on a statistical basis, we're dealing with income inequality in the United States that we haven't seen since the Gilded Age. It's not a, it's not a sort of hyperbolic analogy to compare them. Um, it is also, that was a period of tremendous polarization. That was a period of when people began to think is the American experiment kind of coming apart at the seams. And here I will, you know, at, at I will, I will nod to another scholar's work. I've already mentioned, you know, Lepore and Joanne Freeman, but I think you can't talk about the Gilded Age and today without talking about the work that Robert Putnam has done. And it's 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 an important book that he did called The Upswing, which he wrote with uh, Shailen Romney Garrett. And it is a book about the end of the Gilded Age and the beginning of the progressive era in America. And he wrote it now for a reason, which is he says he sees some similar kind of um, he's there are some similar um, there's some rhyming in history because of the reasons I was just talking about the degree of income inequality, the ways in which the political system seemed incapable of catching up to where we are and the stresses on it. And the encouraging thing, and this is genuinely encouraging, is, of course, the United States did not come apart at the end of the Gilded Age. It's it sort of found its way into a new chapter in politics. Progressive meant something very different than it does now. But it's worth us reminding ourselves that all of the major presidential candidates who across the political spectrum at that point identified themselves as progressive candidates. They said, we are, we are agents of that kind of change. And you saw the creation of federal public high schools, I'm sorry, of public high schools of, uh, you know, uh, regulation of the new financial industry. These kinds of things give us, give me at least, um, some signposts for seeing how a moment when, I mean, over and over people will say to me, I don't see a way that we begin to bend this curve right now in this country. And I say, I don't buy it, actually. Uh, we've done it before. 
Um, but it takes awareness. You have to kind of write it, you have to describe it, and then you have to uh, galvanize political energy around it. But I don't at all for a minute believe this idea that we're on some sort of, um, that we're on some sort of unmovable trajectory. History doesn't support that. No, you know, I find, look, I love talking history, uh, but history is used in political discourse for how we think about where we are and where we're going. Um, mm. Right before I moved uh, to Australia, I'd written a piece with a friend about how do we see our international situation? Uh, are we in the 1930s? Uh, is this the kind of, you know, is everything fading to black? Or do we find ourselves in the 1970s where everything looked that way and then we turned a page and things moved in a very different direction? Mm -hmm. And there are indicators, of course, for both. Uh, but, you know, your point, Evan, that, look, the Gilded Age, wild income inequalities, uh, you know, social disruption and anarchy. I mean, there was a yep. group called the anarchists blowing stuff up all over the United mm -hmm. States. Um America in a real period of churn about what it was, what it was going to become, what role it would have, not only at home, but on the world stage. And of course, if you take that as an analogy for all the rottenness that was associated with that era, this is a good news story when we zoom out because it prompted all the reforms uh, that we began to see around the progressive era. Now, you just said, and so I do want to kind of grasp at some straws here about some mm -hmm. of the positive elements here, yeah. uh, that you see some signposts to that. Um, yeah. And you can say that uh, good, bad or indifferent, uh, there is an awful lot of churn in our system right now. And frankly, both political parties are trying to understand and situate, situate themselves, kind of riding that crest of fury, that anger, not getting consumed by it mm -hmm. and potentially pointing the way to some new things. Uh, yeah. We, we can talk about contemporary politics, but talk a little bit about some of the signposts or where you see us right now. I, I'll give you an example of something that I find kind of encouraging. I mean, I um, I spent time in West Virginia with a really interesting, um, you have to call it a political grouping, because they are not a party. They are not a caucus. They are a group, a coalition that calls themselves West Virginia Can't Wait. What's fascinating about it is they're not a group that goes in and says, my first question to you, my dear fellow citizen in West Virginia is, did you vote for Biden or did you vote for Trump? Because they know if they do that, end of story, they're losing half the room and probably two thirds of the room if they're, if they're uh, gonna uh, not talk to the Trump voters. Instead, what they do is they go in and they say, policy first, we're interested in things like uh, investment in roads and bridges, we're interested in uh, parental leave. We're interested in early childhood education, which are all extremely popular in West Virginia, even though it is, after all, let's remember, Trump country in the shorthand of my profession. And I say that sort of mournfully because I think part of the problem, the reason I say it mournfully is I think this kind of label really has a, uh, a deterministic power where it basically begins to say this thing is this, is this and ever thus and can never be anything else. One of the fascinating facts about West Virginia that people may not know is in the Democratic primary in 2016, uh, Bernie Sanders won all 55 counties in that state. So you had this very unusual situation where you had Bernie Sanders winning all 55 counties and you had Donald Trump winning the general election. Could not be more different in terms of their policy prescriptions. But what it really, the message they were sending was obviously, 
we're sick of business as usual in Washington. And this coalition called West Virginia Can't Wait, which is populated mostly by younger political activists who, let's be blunt, would call themselves progressive, but they know that term is poisoned in West Virginia. They've had some success. They've recruited people to run for office in the last couple of cycles. They're, you're going to hear more from them in the years ahead. And I mention them because they are this kind of cross-cutting, um, what I might call a sort of cross-cutting tool of politics. They're not pretending that you can start a third party and get and get much headway in government. We know that. Michael Bloomberg looked into it. He spent money on trying to figure it out. He realized you can't do it as a third party or an independent candidate. So instead, they're doing this other thing. And I think what it's taught me is, a, is, is that, A, we should be pretty, we, we should have some humility about our assumptions about where politics is and where it can and can't go. Like I said, West Virginia was all Democrats in 1999 when I was there. It's almost entirely Republicans today. None of this is preordained or set in stone. And the second piece of this is let's go easy on the labels because I don't think we're doing ourselves in either party much help by assuming that one, one group is inaccessible. Uh, just one other note on this, Charlie, because I think it's interesting. Katie Lauer, who's one of the people I describe in the book, Katie Lauer is one of the organizers of the West Virginia Can't Wait Coalition. You know, she came up more or less through liberal politics. And after the 2020 election, Trump had just gotten crushed. I shouldn't say that. Trump had just lost. Uh, in fact, it was close. It wasn't. It was, he didn't get crushed. But she was looking at it. And one might think, OK, Katie Lauer is going to be really pleased to be in this situation. She's looking at Twitter and she sees on Twitter that somebody is saying, one of her kind of liberal colleagues is saying, I hope everybody at the Cracker Barrel is crying right now. And she said, you know, why is that? that we want anybody to be crying right now. That is not gonna lead us to a better politics, to a better political culture. That is the part of the problem. And I think there is this, um, there is this realm of possibility if you can sort of, um, if you can find these kinds of cross-cutting ventures, then uh, you're, you're more likely to be able to stitch something that looks like a recognizable politics. Actually, uh, expand on that. I mean, uh, one of the questions uh, I got here is from an old friend of yours, uh, mine, Richard McGregor, uh, who's now not in Beijing, not in Washington, but firmly ensconced in his home back in Sydney, working at the Lowy Institute, writing up a storm. Um, mm -hmm. And Richard um, also has read your book. So we were talking about it a little bit. Uh, and he asked me, um, he said, on this very point, Evan, he said, uh, I, you know, can you press Evan a little bit more on whether liberals failed to recognize that many of the older Democrats uh, and frankly, some of the younger blue collar workers struggled with the cultural agenda uh, that the Democrats have? And yeah, did they recognize this? They felt neglected economically. They felt felt to a certain degree spurned uh, as a people. Uh, that's a loaded statement. There's a lot in there, but could they have been brought along? Is that what you're talking about with this group in West Virginia? Uh, I mean, this kind of, you could take this in a lot of different ways, but you know, part yeah. of this is how is, whether the Democratic Party and how is Biden doing managing the big tent right now? Uh, I mean, look, Richard is right. He's absolutely right. The Democratic Party failed when it came to figuring out how to keep West Virginia in its column into the 21st century. And that partly to do with, um, I, I think a sort of belated recognition of how to negotiate the culture of the coal industry. And I say culture advisedly, it's not just the economics, it's how do you figure out how to get a place like West Virginia to see itself as not being left behind by history. But if, if I can give you one great example of this, Charlie, it's fascinating to me. 
I, I talk about Clarksburg, West Virginia. It's a place, it's sort of one, the, one of the three settings in the book. Clarksburg in 1960, which was a, a, a memorable presidential race, John F. Kennedy coming to power. He came to West Virginia. It was an important state for him because he had to demonstrate that a Catholic could get support of Protestant voters. West Virginia, one of the highest numbers of Protestant Democrats in the country. And in little Clarksburg, West Virginia, I went back into the clippings and John F. Kennedy came to Clarksburg and then he came again and Bobby Kennedy came and Teddy Kennedy came and Jackie Kennedy came and Hubert Humphrey and Lyndon Johnson. This is a town of 16,000 people. And John F. Kennedy, in fact, went on television for a half an hour and answered questions from local people in West Virginia, in Clarksburg, West Virginia. And I was talking to the folks at the Historical Society, uh, who I've, I've gotten to know, of course, over the, over the years as I've been working on this project. And I said, would you help me figure out what other presidential candidates have come through in recent years? And they said, well, we went back and we looked. And since Kennedy, we can't find much of anybody, except it seems that once perhaps Jesse Jackson might have come through town in 1988. So in this really vivid personal way, the Democratic Party, in a sense, and it's not a criticism of the party fundamentally, it's just a failure of attention, that it just began to look elsewhere. It began to say our future is in the cities, our future is not in West Virginia. And it was such a thorough turning of the tide that they did lose the possibility of retaining those votes. And uh, when the pendulum swung, it swung hard. And it's now going to be very hard to win people back, but not impossible. Uh, but to Richard's question, yes, uh, it is a fact that there was probably a point when there could have been a case made to essentially white working class men in West Virginia that there was a future for them in the Democratic Party. And um, and they didn't do it. It has to do with the party's relationship to organized labor and a lot of things, residential patterns, uh, race. But in the end, it was a failure. And I, I just think there's no other way to describe it than that. So, uh, look, we've been talking about kind of big trends. You've been doing that really nicely. But I, I'm sure that, you know, a lot of people who are listening also are quite interested in you're in Washington. I'm in Washington. Yeah. How does this all impact on what we're seeing play out? So let's just go straight yeah. from that last question to this point of, how well is, you know, Joe Biden rode into Washington with a message? Uh, it was pretty simple. Uh, he was going to restore hope. He was not Trump. Uh, his agenda seems to have in many ways not delivered, right? That is the trend that we're seeing going through the Senate. Um, you can make an argument that it's about to deliver, but mm -hmm. let's start just with the basic political question. Uh, how well, it, how do you assess, how well is he doing holding the sprawling big tent of democratic politics together? Well, in some ways, you know, part of Biden's uh, superpower uh, in the presidential race was also his enormous weakness, which is his superpower, of course, was that he was not Donald J. Trump. And that was this really strong unifying fact among Democrats that you know, the fact that he simply had such a different approach to human affairs, he had such a different approach to politics, he just talked about it differently. He was, it was sort of easy for him to be the antidote. But as a result, it kind of occluded us to the depth of division within the party because people were willing to put their differences on the shelf for a while. And Charlie, I'll be interested in your thoughts on the same question, but my, my sense is that in a, for you know, the sake, the urgency of winning in 2020 was enough that you got people as different as Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders willing to 
um, you know, row the boat in the same direction, uh, at least through November 3rd. And we knew that there was always going to be a level of, of division within the party that he would have to negotiate. Um, I think it's deeper and more enduring even than we expected. But I think one of the reasons why is that we live in a period right now when parties themselves are extremely weak. I mean, this is worth noting. I mean, partly the nature of campaign finance, um, partly because of the, the ways in which um, the media is structured. Candidates can essentially go out and raise their own money and talk to the public directly. Parties themselves, the old party chairman, the old sort of Lyndon Johnson, uh, he wasn't the party chairman in this role, but the kind of leaning in and, and working people, that is not how parties work right now. And Joe Biden is in the position of trying to um, you know, essentially seduce as much as he is coerce somebody like Joe Manchin into submission. And uh, and it doesn't go cleanly. But I'm curious what you think. Why is it, do you think, that the Biden the Biden administration has run into the kinds of trouble it has? Um, <clears throat> two points, one totally unrelated to what you just asked me. Uh, so look, as you were talking about almost a sociological deep take that you had on coming back to America. Uh, as an American in Australia for the last three and a half years, uh, I would uh, I would joke with a lot of friends uh, that Australia is a very sneaky country, and none of my Aussie friends would believe me. They'd say sneaky. We're we're so blunt and upfront, which is true. Uh, but the reason I would say that is, as an American, moving to Australia is the easiest place in the world to move to. Right? It's just a little bit further than Hawaii, not a little bit. Uh, we speak the same language, more or less. And so unlike what it was like for both you and me living in Beijing, uh, where you are thinking your way through every interaction, uh, through every day, because there's so much that you're just trying to understand what's going on, uh, at least for me, uh, you know, I, my thinking cap wasn't on when I first got to Australia. Uh, but there are some differences and they sneak up on you. Uh, and Look, even the political system, uh, you know, again, this isn't your question precisely, Evan, but it's so interesting for me as an American thinking about the Australian political system, because when we were having conversations about not just the Republican Party and Donald Trump, but say Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party, or certainly from a foreign optic, why is it that both of your parties seem to be running as far away from the center as possible? Uh, one of the things that was brought up to me over and over again is, uh, parties are just so much stronger in Australia mm -hmm. uh, yeah. for national election. You have pre-selection of candidates. Uh, there's, of course, internal jockeying, but they're not running on primaries in the same way that you have here. And also with the difference of ranked choice voting, right, the incentive structure for politicians about how you are going to claim the most votes on your election and therefore how you are shaping your message is quite different which produces a different type of incentives and a different type of politics. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So again, not, not your question at all, but we're speaking at the University of Sydney. Uh, yeah. So I wanted to raise my, you know, inaccurate kind of notes on this. But look, to your question about Joe Biden, um, mm -hmm. I actually think uh, the best article that I read explaining the plummet in the poll numbers, you know, coming out of the Afghanistan withdrawal was written by Peggy Noonan of the Wall Street mm -hmm. Journal. Uh, and she said exactly what you had said, that Joe Biden made his argument about himself. Not only was he not Trump, but he had been in government. He would be serious about governing. 
he was deeply compassionate and values and taking care of America and America's image mattered enormously to him. And right decision or wrong decision on withdrawal from Afghanistan, the narrative surrounding that punctured large holes in each of those kind of core structures of who Joe Biden is as he has presented himself to the American mm-hmm. public. Um, and, you know, people, I think sometimes, you know, it's not particular things, it's just a feeling that you have. And I wonder if that has something to do with it combined with, as you have said, right, some challenges kind of wrangling left, right, and center on the Democratic Party. Um, yeah, yeah. And I would add one other piece to this. I think, you know, we've you know, we've talked a lot about the failures of the party, the failures of, of, of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which are absolutely uh, foreground issues. We have to talk about the fact that the Republican Party that he is contending with is let's be let's remind ourselves. Two thirds of Republicans right now aren't convinced that Joe Biden legitimately won the election, and that's partly because the leadership of the party has condoned that lie, that fiction. And as long as that's the case, it's going to be very hard to uh, have a president succeed. And I, I just don't think, you know, we can't, it will have been malpractice of us to have gone through a whole discussion without acknowledging just truly how bizarre that is for the United States to have a major governing party that does not acknowledge that it lost the last presidential election. That's worrisome. No, look, we were talking about the Democrats. I I know we're approaching the end of the hour. We were going to get to the Republicans. And uh, I'll tell you, Evan, like a really interesting moment. I'm sure you've had many of these, too, on a similar set of questions. We were doing a big public uh, forum uh, about the impeachment process, uh, comma, impeachment round one, not round two at -hmm. the University of Sydney. Uh, I was sitting there with Simon Jackman, our CEO, with Bruce Wolpe, an American who plays an outsized role here with uh, my colleague, Garana Gerchik. And someone in the back of the audience got up and said, um, what will it take for Republicans to move away from Trumpism? Uh, will they move away from Trumpism? Uh, and you know, we get lots of questions and we get a lot of kind of uh, wrong answers. And I'm not sure if mine was right or wrong, but I said, what will it take? It will take a massive repudiation at the electoral box, yeah. uh, which we have not had. Yeah. And so I guess I would ask you to expand about uh, we yeah. talked a little bit about the Democratic Party, but, you know, Bruce Wolpe actually just forwarded me this question. You know, what will it take to break the back of Trump's appeal across the country? But forget about the country within yeah. the Republican Party. Well, and it, you know, it does tie into Joe Biden, because I had an interview, of course, with Biden uh, in just shortly before he won the election in 2020, just a couple of months. And if I was going to identify the thing that he was, that he misjudged, it was that he thought, and he said as much publicly, uh, yes, I think that once Trump is off the scene, that that spell will break. And I don't think, you know, I think we sometimes caricature it and sort of say that Joe Biden thought they were all going to wake up and, and be friendly and work with him again. He didn't think that. He just thought that the very specific hold that Joe, that, that Donald Trump has over his party, that once Trump lost once he was a, a loser in the political sense that that would break the spell and so on. And it simply hasn't. And it hasn't in a way that I think people didn't appreciate because uh, the because Trump has not been Trump's loss has not been adequately kind of confirmed by his party um, that he still holds this this 
shadow over the party. And it's, it's very much specific to him. Um, you know, he is, and there are obviously a lot of pretenders to that throne. There are a bunch of people who would like to be kind of, a, a, call it a more high functioning Trump or a more well-read Trump. We know all versions of that. There are several of them in the United States Congress and uh, they don't have it. They don't have that what you have to call, one of my editors used to call weird charm, which is not a compliment, but that's what he has. It's this kind of dark charisma and it works in politics and it's worked for him. And as long as he's on the scene, I don't see anything that's going to change that, uh, anything immediately. Um, but to go back to an earlier point, and this is really at the heart of what Wildland is about, Trump didn't come out of nowhere. Trump only became possible as a political figure because of things like historic levels of income inequality because of things like a Democratic Party, which failed to reach out to working class, uh, working class white voters in a place like West Virginia in the way that it, that it had before. Those are factors that contribute ultimately to why Trump became possible. And um, yes, it was, you know, Trump has the specific set of attributes. But until you address those underlying issues, which contributed to a collapse in the faith in, in uh, the possibility for, for the Democratic Party, in big swaths of the country, until you address that, you're not going to break the hold that Trump has. I, I, I and you know the way I think of it is, it took two generations for us to get into this mess. It's going to take a lot more than one year of Joe Biden to get out of this mess. You know, I'm uh, there's I'm looking at some of the questions that are coming in, and one of the questions that I remember encountering a lot, and uh, Ken Moskowitz asked this question, so I just thought I'd read it is. Well, you know, how different uh, are the left and the right, right? Uh, how different are Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders? And of course, wildly different uh, views of the world, but both channeling a rage uh, about what has happened in America. And th that's me paraphrasing. Ken's question, sure. though, is you said this, you know, how are Sanders and Trump so different? They're the same on only I can fix it, anti-free trade, anti-government, swamp, populist, anti-elite, system is rigged, and they're both old white guys. Uh, yep. claiming to be outsiders. And I guess the question is, we were just talking about Trump and whether and when the fever might break. But what about on the Democratic Party, too? Will this persist? Will it be pulled further to the left? Bernie Sanders is probably not going to run for president again, although I guess he might. What's your take on that? I would say a couple of things. One, I will stipulate much of what the question proposes. The one difference, and I think it's a fundamental difference, is Bernie Sanders has not tried to overthrow the results of a democratic election. That's really an important recognition we have to make. It is that strange and it is that alien into our system that we have to call out what it is that Trump has been doing uh, because any, anything else is, is, is not actually a fair analysis. But the point is absolutely true, which is that, you know, they are both, they have demagogic qualities. They both are, you know, not all that interested in compromise and so on and so on. And they are both a result of the fact that People have been driven that they sort of are part of, and this goes partly to my, my business in the media business, that we are driving one ourselves to extremes. And I mentioned earlier something that is easy to overlook, which is how, how what a remarkable statistical fact it is that both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump can claim themselves as winners in the state of West Virginia. And that is a sign of how much that the system, people had broken faith with institutions. Interestingly enough, in a one-on-one -on -one contest, by the way, in a poll, Bernie Sanders would have beaten Donald Trump in West Virginia, according to, uh, according to one of the exercises that people ran. 
Um, but I think, look, what we are also dealing with, you, you identified an important point here, which is these are both men in their 70s. And we are dealing with a, a, you know, this is a gerontocracy moment in America. And it is part of the reason why we're in this situation, because people under 40, uh, I can no longer include myself in that group, but people under 40 are just incredibly, incredibly turned off by the inability to access real power uh, because of the fact that there are, are too many folks at the top who are holding on to their jobs. And I think one of the things you're likely to see is that as a generation um, begins to leave the stage that you will see um, a, a lot part of the turbulence we're seeing right now is because there has been all of this kind of pent up energy uh, that hasn't had anywhere to go. And uh, it's part of the explanation for why we got into this moment. Um, look, there's so much I, I failed, right? We didn't talk about this, <laughs> the China debate, which you and I always discuss when we're together. Uh, but uh, there's one thing I, I guess I'd like to end with here. Uh, you got this question all the time. I got this question all the time. When you cut, when you came home from China, uh, having had this crazy sprawling experience, uh, you know, when I was talking with my grandmother, she'd say, "How was it? <laughs> what do you make of it?" Right. And, you know, I, I I had an inability to answer uh, succinctly. Uh, but your new book is a a longer, not a quick one, but an answer to questions that all our friends in Australia might ask, like, America, what do you make of it? Uh, what's mm -hmm. happening? Where's mm -hmm. it going? And I guess I would just ask you, you know, with your journalist hat on too, um, for foreign observers, which in many ways you are in this book, right? It's yeah. how we open the conversation. True. You're right. Yeah. What should they be looking for? What should they be thinking about at this extraordinary moment of churn when they're looking at America? Thank you for this. That's such an intelligent Small question. It's a, no, it's a brilliant question. I and mean, it's the right question. And you know, I just this is such a wonderfully fun and interesting conversation to have with you, Charlie. I just, you know, we could do this. We'll do this for another six hours off camera sometimes. I think, look, the thing I would be looking for, and I'd look at this as an American and as a as an analyst, is do we have the power still within us for self-correction? Because when I think about, you know, eight years in China. I was in the Middle East before that. I come back to the United States. What sets us apart? Those are incredibly complicated places. They have internal problems. They have income inequality. They have corruption. They have all that. What sets us apart? What sets us apart is do we still have the capacity for self-correction? Because, you know, and we don't need to do a whole disquisition on China to make this point. China right now is in the hands of somebody who will choose to stay in office as long as he wants to. That is not a recipe for self-correction. In fact, it's an argument that they're actually heading down a trajectory that will make it hard for them to self-correct. We still have this capacity. It's rippled through our conversation today. It goes back to the transition between the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era. It goes back to the Civil War. If we can find it within ourselves to self-correct after this period of tremendous turmoil and self-defeating uh, you know, uh, self politics that defined the last five years, if we can do that, then I think we will be okay. But it is not a matter of hope. You know, I, I really, I did not think of this when I was writing the book, but it's really become clear to me since then, Charlie, it is a matter of work. You know, hope's not the right noun. This is about work. It's about us acknowledging the scale of the problem, describing it, analyzing it, and sitting down and addressing it candidly. And that's what this kind of conversation is about without, you know, making it too fancy. I really think that the process 
of us talking about the scale of America's troubles is a bar is is the first step in self correction. Let me just conclude, uh, Evan, on a note that uh, we talked about a lot uh, when I was at the U.S. Study Center, uh, in, in person at least, uh, that you know at this moment of strategic competition, uh, America is having to think about and relearn a lot of the kind of soft skills that we had abandoned and rejected uh, because the world had moved on from that place. But what's been coming ever more clear, not only because of the challenge that China presents, but because of the churn going on in all of our domestic societies is some of those soft muscles memory about democratic best practices uh, are things that we have not had to think about for a long time because the argument did not have to be made. Mm. Uh, you know, on the global stage, but that then ripples through our politics too. think about what our systems actually provide and how they can become better. And that is the moment of turn that we are now in um, a longer conversation. But let me just thank you, Evan, for uh, being game for going all over the place. Uh, everyone should rush out. Uh, you know, the best part, Evan, is that Australian publishers and American publishers don't align the publish publication <laughs> date. Uh, so if borders open thoroughly, you will go down there for a great uh, book release. But let me just thank you uh, for such a thoughtful and wide ranging uh, discussion uh, here tonight. Um, My great pleasure. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks for the idea. Thanks for the questions. And thanks for such a great uh, conversation. Thanks, Evan. Um, I'd also like to just tell everyone who's watching, this is it. Uh, this is the final USSC event of the year. But don't forget that there's plenty coming up on the slate uh, next year. Uh, I would point to, I think the slides are kind of rippling through right now. Uh, uh, Janine, you've put up that on the 20th of January, uh, there will be a what to expect in US politics and policy in 2022. Uh, probably a little more tactical than we were talking as opposed to the philosophical reach Evan was cheering us on today. But please make sure that you take a look at the uh, website for upcoming events, publications, videos, and podcasts. Uh, let me also say at the end of the year here, I would be remiss uh, to not thank the extraordinary team at uh, the U.S. Study Center, um, Suze, uh, Mari, especially Janine, who always does all the legwork. Uh, you can't see her, folks, but it's the reason uh, why this is all happening. So thank you all. Uh, have a nice day. It's nighttime here, so Evan and I will now break and have a drink. Uh, but thanks so much for this terrific conversation.